Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. My guest this week is Professor Robert McLaughlin. He is a Professor of Applied Mathematics at Massey University and his area of speciality is geometric integration. Funnily enough, I'm not interested in geometric integration, although I'm sure he'll bend our ear on it. Ear on it. He runs a brilliant climate change blog called Planetary Ecology. And I was struck this week by a most, his most recent post about the new climate change plan, which he describes as sensational, from the lovely country of Ireland. There are many similarities between New Zealand and Ireland, and so I thought it would be a great idea to talk to Robert about Ireland and also about his blog. So, Professor Robert McLaughlin, welcome to this climate business. Thank you, Vincent. I'm glad to be here. Oh, why is this plan sensational? Well, it's extremely uh, bold, basically, uh, and it's proposing lots and lots of sweeping changes. One issue I've run into with uh, a lot of people who are following climate is they get irritated when governments or local bodies put out uh, sort of vague or aspirational targets without actual measures to achieve them. So this is the first national climate plan that I've seen that really does live up to the Paris Agreement and appears to have some teeth to it. When was it uh, announced? When was it brought into effect? Well, in effect, so that's uh, there's a lot behind those two words. This is what they call the programme for government of the incoming coalition government, which is a coalition between the smaller Green Party and two more conservative parties, one of which was the previous government, but their election left uh, no clear winner and then they had many months of uh, coalition negotiations. And they've ended up with those three parties agreeing to what they call the program for government. And it's laid out in a lot of detail. And it came out uh, about a month ago. And their government is a really interesting coalition. It's uh, not the usual combination of um, green and left, as I understand it. That's right. Uh, now, here's where I don't know how to pronounce the names of these parties correctly. Uh, very cool thing to, do, <laughs> to make you um, pronounce those words. Yeah, that's right. So these are two uh, traditional parties that go right back to the founding of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, the political history, I don't want to get into, but uh, it is significant that they've never actually both been in government uh, together at the same time. And broadly speaking, what kind of you know, uh, left, right, middle, What describe the, the coalition for us. Uh, so, I actually, when I was preparing this piece on my blog, I read up uh, about these two conservative parties on Wikipedia, and politics is such a complicated history in Ireland, it's quite difficult to understand. They're, more or less, they're both centre-right parties, and the party that had been in government, they had been talking a good talk on climate change, uh, they had a climate plan in 2017 and then a much stronger one in 2019, but it hadn't actually been leading to any emissions reductions. So they were already in the crosshair, so to speak, for talking a good talk and not actually following through. Just to take one example, they had a plan for or a target for 
a million EVs in Ireland by 2030. Now, at the moment, they have even fewer than New Zealand that barely started at all. So there's a real, there was a real disconnect between what they were saying they were going to do and what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this was even in the news last week because uh, the Irish Supreme Court has actually thrown out both of those previous plans from 2017 and 2019 and said, these are too vague and aspirational and they don't fulfill your own climate law from 2015, which requires you to re reduce emissions. Huh, interesting. All right, so let's go to this plan itself. What what makes a plan sensational in your view? So the strength strengthen the target. It's uh, net zero twenty fifty, uh, which is actually a stronger target than what we have in New Zealand because we've separated out the agricultural methane, which doesn't have to get to zero. So they put a very strong target. Uh, they also included a twenty thirty target though of halving emissions by twenty thirty which means they have to reduce by 7% a year, cumulatively, all the way from now to 2030. And does that so I can't think of any, uh, any other country. That's well, so, sorry, does that 2030 target also include methane? Yeah, well, that's just like in New Zealand, that has been a real stumbling block because they have a lot of, uh, they already had a lot of agriculture. And then some years ago, they rapidly intensified their dairy farming. I think it is related to the EU lifting a cap on dairy production or changing their quota system in some way. So their agricultural emissions are high and have been increasing. And this document that they've agreed doesn't actually uh, spell out how to address those emissions, but they are still included in the overall target. Right, okay. All right, so halving by 2030, uh, net zero by 2050, what, what else is in the plan? So what I liked about it is it really goes through all the different sections of the economy uh, in detail and lays out lots of action points. And the actions that are proposed or have officially been agreed by these government parties, they're much more sweeping than what we're seeing from other countries. So, for example, on transport, where the Ireland is a very car-based uh, transport system, just like New Zealand, what they've agreed is that 20% of the whole transport budget for the country will be dedicated to walking and cycling. They've also instructed all the local right. bodies to yeah. well, look at all the roads <laughs> and see where space can be reallocated from cars to walking and cycling. That's a big transformation. That, that's an amazing number, isn't it? So typically that that money would be spent on roading, bridges, sort of car, car and truck related infrastructure, is that what you're saying? And is yeah, now being diverted? That, that's my understanding. And also on public transport, which will also get a big boost. Now they have to follow through. Of course, that's still going to be difficult when you're starting with a more car based system. Um, they also have a lot of uh, small towns in Ireland that are spread out across the entire country. And all of those people in small towns are used to using cars to get around. Uh, that's going to be a big challenge, but it, at least they're addressing that challenge head on. Okay, carry on. What else is in the plan? So, that, 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 uh, well, that's, so that's uh, transport. The second big one is housing. Uh, it's also seemed very striking to me that they have a housing crisis in Ireland, very similar to New Zealand, both with uh, a shortage of housing, lots of substandard housing, 
and also extremely high prices for housing that have led, you know, some people call it a housing bubble. Their house prices famously crashed during the global financial crisis, but they've shot right up again. Uh, so they're talking about, for example, re by 2030, refitting half a million houses uh, up to a very high standard, basically up to a standard of a new house uh, as it was in the 2000s. Uh, every house in Ireland has a, a energy rating. So they're talking about all the new houses being in the very top grade, almost like a zero energy house, and half a million other houses being upgraded to the second grade. That's going to be, and the money for that will come from this carbon tax, which is also being increased. It's going to ramp up to 100 euros per tonne by 2030. That would be amongst the highest carbon taxes in the world. So they're effectively using the carbon tax to reinvest into into this construction, the new regulations around construction and, and buildings. And does that That's include right. retrofitting as well? That's right. Some of that money will go to retrofitting uh, the existing houses. Um, and there'll also be some money for climate justice, essentially, because a lot of um, people with low incomes are living in substandard housing and will have to pay more for home heating, for example. Turns out everyone in Ireland, a lot of people have um, oil-based central heating. So it's highly polluting and expensive, and now it has to be phased out and replaced by heat pumps. That's the plan. Uh, that's going to be a big project. Anything else there on your, your list that gets a tick? Yeah, well, it's very sweeping. So the, um, the parts that the uh, climate advocates in Ireland are most pleased with is the strengthening of the legal framework so that um, they have adopted, now adopted a system very similar or even stronger to what we have in New Zealand, namely the Climate Advisory Committee will set or recommend the carbon budgets. Uh, but the difference is the government will now be compelled to um, meet them, essentially. Uh, it's, I don't know the legal details, but they are described as legally binding uh, five-yearly carbon budgets. Uh, because as, as I was saying earlier, that's been the problem in the past. They've said they would do something and then they haven't followed through. So this is now this now seems to be much stronger. And is that body that you've just described, is that the equivalent of our Climate Commission? It's very similar, yeah. So this, uh, this framework, as far as I understand, was pioneered by the UK, who have been operating the system of an independent climate uh, committee since mm -hmm. about 2008 in the UK, advising on the carbon budgets and measures to achieve them, and then the government replies, and then the interesting part is what happens next, because you can easily see how there's a risk of it all falling over where those two sides uh, simply don't agree. That's what's been happening in the UK. So it's that process by which uh, those disagreements can be ironed out, essentially. Uh, committee, the Climate Committee is only advisory, like we have in the UK and in New Zealand. But then there still has to be some way of ensuring that the government does actually follow through. Mm. What are the punishments or the, I suppose, what stick does that committee have when it comes to following up on what the politicians decide or don't decide? 
I guess, um, well, I guess we've seen that already with this decision from the Irish Supreme Court. They, they have literally thrown out the old pre-existing climate plan and said, didn't fulfill your own climate law. Uh, that is much stronger than what could happen in New Zealand. Robert, there are many similarities between New Zealand and Ireland, and I think in your blog you point them out about the size of the country, the the nature of our economy be, being still quite dominated by agriculture. Obviously, some uh, historic connections in the type of people. Um, there's a lot of Irish people of Irish extraction in New Zealand. We have great affection, and um, we certainly love to thrash them in rugby. There are also some quite important differences, though, aren't there? And I think particularly about, for instance, the um, proximity to markets being part of the European Union. To what extent does being part or being close to the EU, in fact, being part of the EU, provide them with a certain, I don't know, a, a kind of fiscal comfort that they can do these things without... Uh, affecting their ability to to compete effectively on exports and and particularly the cost, I suppose you know the cost burden on um, a country for for doing these kind of measures is then has to be reflected in the prices that that we sell our exports at. Yeah, well, you've raised an extremely important and difficult issue uh, that I don't think we've really grappled with yet in New Zealand. Uh, what do they call this? The energy intensive trade exposed industries like this steel and formerly the aluminium smelter, which is now going to close. Uh, so yeah, Ireland is in a different situation and their membership of the EU, that, that, that helps them a lot because they can be part of those larger systems and it helps them on trade, as you said. Uh, but it also meant that when they were lagging, they were liable to be punished by the EU. And that was in the process of happening. They had actually been rated the worst performers on climate in the EU. So they were, there was an increased pressure for them to do something about it. Uh, yeah, this thing about our export industries, uh, it's extremely difficult. And I don't think the plans we have in place at the moment uh, are going to be sufficient. Because really what has to happen is where we have an industry operating here that's part of a global industry, that global industry has to work as a body to decarbonize or to re reduce their uh, emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the moment, of course, that is not happening. Each of those industries in each country has an incentive to try to rig the system in their favor. Uh, so I guess for that reason, it's really something we have to work on for the future. And in the meantime, we should be reducing emissions from the other sections like transport. There's another um, quite important difference, uh, and that is that they don't have as much renewable energy already built in before they start. And, you know, I understand that so many of the gains, particularly in the UK and in Ireland, uh, in terms of emissions comes around energy use. Uh, and, and yet they're still miles away from us in terms of renewable capacity. So I think the UK is up to 30% renewable. You know, we're, we're pushing up over 85, sometimes sometimes even up to 90. Um, those, in some ways, it's an unfair comparison. Um, to, to what extent is our job harder 
to make those reductions in emissions when so much of our energy is already, if you like, the easy bits of our energy have already been dealt to? Yeah, that is a difference. Uh, but some of those countries, like the UK, they have made astonishing progress on a that's a very large section of the economy where they have decarbonized it very rapidly. Uh, so their emissions in the UK, their emissions per kilowatt hour are now only twice New Zealand's. They're on 100 grams per uh, kilowatt hour and they're on 200. Uh, so the, the headline figure of percent renewable is not the only important uh, metric there. And New Zealand still has 5 million tonnes of CO2 per year coming from the electricity sector. And there are technologies to get rid of it uh, cost-effectively. Uh, and it still, it still remains an easier sector to work with than some other things like transport. Uh, so, Is that really so true, though? I think that that, as I understand it, having read uh, that sub there's a submission by the New Zealand Initiative, which I think you refer to in one of your blogs, uh, just about how hard it is to get that last yeah. 5 to 10 percent. So our ambition by, well, the government's stated ambition is to have renewables reach 100% uh, 100% renewable energy, electricity generation, barring a dry year, uh, by 2035, I think. Is that right? 2035, yep. I think, has been mm -hmm. is the ambition. Uh, and the cost of that is eye-watering in terms of the that last 5%. And the question is, is it worth it? Are there other areas of the economy that, we could target for emissions reduction and just live with that last 5% of coal-fired and gas-fired uh, electricity generation yep. of those peak moments. Yeah, it has to be looked at closely. Uh, and I think it is worth it because as well as the exist getting rid of the existing coal and uh, gas in electricity production, we also need more electricity, even if we did all the demand management measures that people are looking at to get rid of uh, all of the oil use in transport and industry that is going to need more electricity. So that whole system of, of providing that and balancing the variability of wind and so on, that's going to have to be done anyway. Uh, so there was this announcement uh, about a week ago that the government is now going to look at a large pumped hydro storage in central Otago. Uh, as that was recommended by the Climate Committee. And that would have the potential to, yeah, basically to allow a lot more wind and solar into the system and balance its intermittency and get rid of, essentially, that would allow us to de decarbonise most of the economy. So there may be other ways to do that. that but, uh, sorry, Rob. Yeah, uh, just yeah. explain that concept of, of the pumped hydro. What, what, what does it do and how does that work? So this particular proposal, which they're going to now examine, uh, involves taking an existing reservoir in central Otago, it's called Lake Onslow, and raising its level significantly by another 80 metres, or to a total height of 80 metres, and it would have, then have an enormous uh, storage facility storing energy in the form of the gravitational energy of that water. That's the big weakness of our entire hydro system, is that we have a lot of generation capacity, but extremely little storage. So the moment it stops uh, rain like it does, uh, they have, every winter they have less inflow in the winter, suddenly you need to find that electricity from elsewhere. So that way, when the, if this were built, or if this one or a similar one were built, 
in times of excess uh, renewable energy, excess wind and solar, you would be pumping the water uphill and storing it. And then when you needed it, you would release the water and generate electricity. So many people are looking at pumped hydro as a form of energy storage, but this particular proposal is a particularly big one. It would really, uh, it would sort of, it's like a nation-sized battery, essentially. Have you looked at alternatives? And I'm going to put you on the spot, and it's not fair to be, to put this question to you because you're not a you're not a hydrologist or a um, an electricity engineer. But have you looked at other alternatives to pumped hydro, such as a big battery, as they have in South Australia? Yeah. So the issue there, the batteries work very well. For, my understanding is they work very well for short term uh, load balancing, uh, but whereas the pumped hydro has the potential to do seasonal load balancing and correct this imbalance between the demand which is highest in winter and the hydro which is more available in the summer. Uh, having said that, there's a lot of other things that we do need to look at in our energy system, so like energy efficiency and uh, demand management, for example. Mm. Uh, well, well, we're not answering that question. Yeah. Um, uh, not fair to ask a... Um, a a mathematician uh, and an electrical engineering question necessarily. Uh, one of the people you spoke to recently on your blog was um, James Renwick, uh, probably is a year Sir James Renwick now from Niwa, uh, who is um, such a lovely guy. I must get him on my show. Yeah. But he talked to you about uh, the Antarctic and in particular the um, Thwaites Glacier, which I think he described as the Doomsday Glacier. What can you tell us about that? What on earth is the Doomsday Glacier? Yes, yeah, so after James Renwick used the term the Doomsday Glacier to describe Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica, I had to look that one up. And it seems to date to uh, the headline in a Rolling Stone magazine article in 2017. Um, but this whole field of what's happening, the, the changes in Antarctica, it's absolutely fascinating, and that is James Renwick's uh, special field, of course. And the discovery uh, that the whole of West Antarctica might be unstable to what's called the marine ice sheet instability, that's one of the, well, it's scary, but it's also one of the great stories in the discovery of global warming. Uh, it was first proposed as a possibility in 1978 by a glaciologist called John Mercer. And it, it got some attention at the time. So I remember reading about this you know, when I was a teenager in Scientific American, this possibility that the whole of West Antarctica could melt, leading to rapid sea level rise. So it was being discussed already in the 70s and 80s, but nobody really knew for sure, because it's very difficult to get to. This Thwaites Glacier, only a few dozen people have ever actually been there in history. Very remote and difficult place to study. And the mechanism that he came up with is that uh, the ocean is warming, it's possible then to melt these glaciers, which are sitting on the sea floor. They can be melted from below, and then they could potentially start peeling off uh, from the front so that the ice is floating, and it will then move more rapidly out to sea. It's called, that's the marine ice sheet instability. And the first part of that, where they're starting to peel off the sea floor, that is now happening. They're about 20 or 30 kilometers have peeled off out of these enormous structures. Uh, so what I was asking James about is this uh, question of has this instability been triggered and are then, is it now essentially uh, unstoppable so that over the next few centuries 
this process will continue without stopping. Uh, and his answer was, well, we'd have to look at it again, but I think he was a bit uh, political. It basically, uh, most people think that we're not quite at the point of unstoppable collapse, but it's somewhere out there in the future. Mm, that's frightening. Yeah. Even if it was reversible, what are the likely effects of that sheet melting as fast as it seems to be? Yeah, well, fast is a relative term. Uh, Uh, under the most extreme uh, or the worst case scenarios, it would possibly add an extra one metre of sea level rise this century. So we're already looking at up to one metre. If this instability were to be triggered, it could potentially add another metre, so that is quite bad. But of course, the big picture with Antarctica is uh, all of the other ice there. That could take thousands of years to melt, but it, you know, it contains enough for 60 or 70 metres of sea level rise. Mm. Uh, and I, as I, I think from uh, the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees, uh, I seem to remember the conclusion was that limiting warming to uh, 1.5 would greatly slow this process. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I'm interested to know why you started the blog. You are a mathematician. What was your journey into climate change activation? Uh, activities and um or activism i should say um you know where, where, what was your journey into sustainability yeah that is, that's uh that's the key word isn't it uh, journey because it does feel like that and having talked to other people they all have their own story uh so i'm from christchurch and i studied mathematics at canterbury and then at caltech in pasadena in california uh, and i was studying fluid dynamics so i was already a little bit interested in atmospheric uh, dynamics. And somehow that led to a greater and greater interest in climate physics, but not as an activist so much, more as just an interesting thing to know more about, uh, and especially to, to follow, because climate science is uh, it's, uh, changing all the time. It's advancing and changing all the time. It's just a very interesting subject in science. So one thing led to another. Uh, so there were some key events. Uh, one I remember was uh, in 1998, I'd, I learned about the existence of this crucial uh, step in the discovery of global warming of this paper from 1898 by Arrhenius, where he laid out the entire theory of global warming by burning fossil fuels and predicted mm -hmm. how much warming there would be and so on. And uh, the fact that this had been known already in 1898 that was very striking. He was, of course, I, quite positive about that because he thought a warmer planet would be good for vegetation right. and horticulture. That's right. It's pretty astonishing uh, reading that paper today. Yeah. Uh, so gradually I stepped, uh, I guess I stepped up and started to do more uh, outreach activities. Um, the actual blog that was founded by Professor Steve Truick and myself, so he's in ecology here at Massey University, and it just seemed to us that... Um, Biodiversity loss and climate change, they're the two global environmental issues that are most important, both globally and also for New Zealand. So that is our, our project to try to bring more attention to that. Mm. Uh, we're kind of shaping it around, or our goal is to shape it around these nine planetary boundaries uh, introduced by um, the Swedish scientist Johan Rockström. He calls the 
these nine things, nine areas which define a safe operating space for humanity. And as you read through this list of nine boundaries, uh, it's very striking that all of them are the key environmental issues for New Zealand. For example, fresh water, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus pollution, climate change, biodiversity loss. I guess what I would hope would be that uh, we can learn to deal better with our environmental challenges in New Zealand by knowing more about how other people are addressing them overseas. Mm. What's been the response to the blog? Have you uh, do, do you get much feedback on it? Uh, yeah. So, um, but, well, as I expect, you found with your own uh, own media work, it's highly variable, right? So. Uh, Steve Truick did a post about cats and COVID-19, linking it to biodiversity and human-animal interactions. And because it had cats in it, it was enormously popular and soon he was getting essentially hate mail from, uh, it was reprinted in French and then he was getting mail from all around the world, uh, sort of got a bit out of control. Um, we all know how the internet yeah. works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So more articles on cats, I think that is the advice. Yeah, clearly. Well, it worked for Gareth Morgan, didn't it? And I'm really interested to know what your ambition would be, or perhaps it's more about hopes and dreams. You know, we've got the Climate Change Commission uh, starting to do its work and, and will be issuing its first report very soon. If you think about your, think back to what you were talking about, Ireland, and also what you know about New Zealand, if you did have your top three or four things that you would love to see. Your wish list, Robert, what's on it? Well, I certainly hope that people don't think uh, we've solved this one already. Uh, that is a sentiment I've seen a few places that having got the zero carbon bill, it's sort of sorted as a major public issue. Of course, it's not. The work has really barely begun. Mm. Uh, and there's a long way yes, to go. In the UK, we must point out as well. Mm. Yeah, it's just I still think there's a long way to go in terms of shifting the center of public opinion mm. and uh, knowledge more in this direction because uh, the risk is when the government does propose uh, actions that could actually reduce emissions like changing the transport system they can run into a reaction from the public if the pu public isn't sufficiently on board so the government are, in, in all countries i guess they're in a very delicate spot where they have to lead and they have to not be too hypocritical. They can't say one thing and do another, or they'll be caught out on that. But yeah. also, they can't get too far in front of public opinion. So I guess that is the art of politics. Uh, and the, the responsibility of the uh, activists is to try and keep that issue and, and the facts on which it's based under the public eye. So that, uh, that, there was only two things so far. What, what else is so, there? Well, specifically, uh, uh, the, the two big sectors that I've been following most closely are transport and electricity. We don't have any plan to reduce transport emissions in this country. Uh, we just have unlimited imports of, uh, of new petrol burning cars, right? 320,000 new petrol and diesel vehicles every year. Uh, the country's just being flooded with them. Uh, there presently is no plan. We need to develop such a plan and start putting it into effect. Um, that, that's a big one, uh, and as we've seen with the the Auckland Council's uh, climate plan, they've got bold uh, 
dreams, I guess, there of what they would like to achieve, but it's still going to be difficult to carry people along with them, I think. It was very discouraging to interview uh, Scott Simpson last week, the, the National Party spokesperson on uh, climate change, and uh, they op opposed, of course, the fee bait scheme that was put forward uh, last year or the year before by the Greens and was opposed by National and New Zealand First. Uh, is there a scheme like feebate that could be reintroduced to tilt the um you know tilt the market in favor of evs well uh feebates do do work uh, but when that was proposed the major part of that proposal was the clean car plan which was a fuel efficiency standard for all vehicles entering new zealand would be one of the few countries that doesn't have that uh in parts of the industry did support the clean car plan. Uh, so I would definitely like to see that go ahead uh, at some point in the future. That's uh, just urgent because we're just, for one thing, we're just wasting so much money by driving such inefficient vehicles all the time. So economically, it's uh, it's a win to have a fuel efficiency standard. Uh, but I've also been persuaded over the years that the evidence that the entire car-based society is basically unsustainable that looks pretty strong to me. So we need to start taking steps on that as well. Yeah, indeed. How hopeful are you, Robert? I, I, uh, you, you swim in this stuff, and so potentially it could be a bit of a downer. Uh, what gives you hope or uh, encouragement to carry on? Well, uh, yeah, when I was doing public talks on, on climate change, uh, you start talking about Antarctica and so on, people do say, isn't that a bit depressing? And one answer there is it's still better to know the truth than to uh, be ignorant of it. If these glaciers are, in fact, unstable, you really want to know about it and hopefully inform your actions. Uh, I can't really hide away indefinitely. Uh, I guess I try to be a realist. So I did an article for Stuff recently. Uh, they, they Readers send in climate questions. Uh, and this question was, uh, are we doomed? <laughs> And in particular, if we don't cut emissions by 2030, are we doomed then? So my reply was, no, it's still easily possible to limit global warming to 1.5. And even if we don't do anything by 2030, uh, well, then we can still work, to, we'll still have to cut emissions anyway, and we'll, we can still work towards limiting warming to two degrees. Uh, now, this article triggered a lot of doomers. So the comments were all from people saying, this is far too optimistic. We definitely, definitely do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the end so is I, guess, I, I guess my only point is uh, I'm always striving to not be too optimistic or too pessimistic and try and uh, be balanced. And I do think that the all of the political, the, there have been a lot of encouraging political developments in the last few years. Uh, and we can learn from them and push them a bit further. Well, that's great, Robert. Well, I, I hope you continue because your blog is terrific. It's really, um, it's not only is it uh, informative, but um, you've got a lovely turn of phrase, so it's a delight to read. So, uh, Robert McLaughlin, thank you for joining us on this climate business. Thank you, Vincent. It's been great. 
And just a reminder to listeners, uh, do send in your bribes and fan mail to um, to us at uh, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com. And just a little promo for uh, other shows in our network. Every so often I appear on the EV podcast, which is, uh, funnily enough, about EVs. And also, um, we have uh, the business New, business New Zealand uh, podcast and the New Zealand Tech podcast. So do have a listen to those on the uh, podcast New Zealand family of podcasts. And hopefully, we'll see you again next week. In Nohora. Thanks for listening to this climate business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.